This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the Smart Talk series, a Henry George School of Social Science podcast. The Smart Talk series is a weekly podcast with an array of discussions held with academics, policymakers, practitioners, and other professionals to explore new ideas and theories within the economics field. Our discussion today came from our archives and was recorded in February of 2017. Our talk is hosted by our former president, Andrew Mazzoni, and Dr. Jack Rasmus. Dr. Rasmus is a professor at St. Mary's College in California, where he focuses on inequality and economic crises. Dr. Rasmus began his career in journalism and is the author of numerous books on the political economy, such as Central Bankers at the End of Their Rope, The Scourge of Neoliberalism, and Epic Recession. He has served as a negotiator, organizer, and president of multiple local unions. He is the host of the radio show Alternative Visions and has contributed to multiple magazines such as World Financial Review, European Financial Review, and World Review of the Political Economy. Together, we discuss the impact of public policy under Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan, his prediction for trade policies under the Trump presidency, and a history of the modern political economy. We apologize in advance for the poor audio quality, as Andrew, our president, was sick during the time of recording. We hope you enjoyed this talk, and please make sure to check back on our page every week for a brand new episode. I'll start off by setting the stage on something I did uh, a week ago. I gave a talk in New York City on the implications of the Trump election. And one of the things I said was that, you know, Donald Trump, you know, talking about the free trade and the offshoring and the things that we're familiar with, uh, I argued that Donald Trump uh, really didn't understand uh, what happened there. He thinks it's, it's stupid people in America who uh, made some bad policy mistakes and allowed this to happen. And I argued, on the contrary, this was a conscious policy thought through and maybe uh, reacted on in and, and, and some mid-course corrections. But essentially the policy uh, that America followed was set in 1942 at the, after the Battle of Stalingrad. Policy planners realized we would win the war and that we didn't want to recreate the conditions of World War III with autarkic growth and capitalism. And so that we would have three centers could take up the slack and, and uh, you know, absorb shocks better with a tripartite uh, setup rather than, you know, each country for itself. So that, that Donald Trump, although he understood that outsourcing and all that occurred, he thinks by bringing in some smart people, he could recreate and rectify the past if he's true to what he says, which I don't really believe anyway. But anyway, I uh, want to pick it up there. I argue that uh, American elites are, are fully conscious of what they did here and, in effect, basically made the decision 
that they could run a worldwide capitalism a la Rome. And they really didn't need the working and middle class of America as a perpetual uh, stoker of their engine. So I wanted you to you comment on that, whether I'm right, wrong, or I'm arguing that American policy planners knew what they were doing, generally speaking. Uh, they made a mistake in, 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 in thinking that they could maintain a technological re, uh, lead after World War II when they rebuilt Germany and, and Japan. I think they missed the boat in understanding that new new equipment with a with a smart labor force that, that existed in Germany and Japan wouldn't necessarily always be behind the, uh, behind the loop technolo technologically speaking. And once that was uh, apparent, then the policy planners at the time also facing in the 70s labor disaffection and, uh, and social problems, the black revolution, uh, the young revolution, people not happy with the status quo, basically made the decision to outsource and hedge their bets and go an international route and figure they could run a virtual system uh, and, and outflank American workers and American labor. And of course, when the communists fell, then it really opened up a labor pool to make that strategy workable. Your comments on that general thesis? Well, I think uh, if you go back to World War II, <clears throat> What you see, uh, the U.S. was preeminent economically following the war and uh, had a free reign for several decades uh, simply to uh, expand and export goods and services and export money capital uh, throughout the world, including uh, in particular Europe and Japan, which were pretty much under its economic influence and control. And uh, that worked, uh, that free hand uh, for expansion. Uh, both at home and abroad, uh, worked until about the mid-late 60s when you started getting competition rising in Europe and uh, in, uh, in Japan. Uh, and uh, competition uh, began to cut into uh, corporate profits uh, abroad. At the same time, uh, the U.S. labor movement uh, had reached an apex of a uh, of capability of protecting uh, wages and benefits by the late 60s, early 70s. We had the second largest strike wave in U.S. Uh, labor history in 1970-71. And uh, unions, large unions, steel workers, auto workers, uh, teamsters led by construction workers, were getting 20% first-year increases in wages and benefits uh, in a three-year contract and very large strikes. Uh, business could not uh, control it, so uh, Nixon was brought in, and that's why you got the wage freeze and the wage controls and so forth. At the same time, Nixon's new economic program also uh, uh, gave uh, a leg up to U.S. Corpora corporations uh, in competition with their European uh, counterparts at the time by uh, uh, devaluing uh, uh, the dollar, in other words, ending the Bretton Woods system where the dollar was was pegged to 35 uh, for the gold. In other words, Smithsonian Agreement uh, devalued the dollar. And uh, with the end of uh, Bretton Woods in the 70s, what you got was the central banks trying to coordinate and uh, uh, the managed float, as it was called. <clears throat> and central banks came to the fore as the um, the main engine or source of, uh, of uh, a currency stability 
and therefore preventing devaluations, which were so terrible during uh, the 30s, and of course, lack of trade during during the war period. Uh, this this system broke down in the 70s. The post the immediate post war U.S. system broke down with Bretton Woods, and uh, we we saw crises, economic crises in the 70s, uh, and. Uh, the decision was made, I think, uh, uh, by big corporations uh, who reorganized themselves into the business council and so forth uh, to tame labor and tame these social movements, which they did during the 70s quite well, uh, and also to begin expanding in a new direction, as you put it, globally, uh, beginning in the 80s. Uh, sometimes this is sometimes called neoliberalism. Uh, this is the the, the new strategic um, policy mix that was developed in the late 70s, actually under Carter, and implemented then uh, aggressively under under uh, uh, Reagan. <clears throat> and ever since, ever since then, we've had just variations, versions of uh, neoliberalism, uh, different emphases. Under Clinton, it was more free trade. Uh, under uh, uh, under Reagan, it was uh, you know we're going to have the Plaza. Cords, and we're going to tame the Japanese and uh, the Louvre Agreement and tame the Europeans. Uh, but uh, free trade uh, and elimination of, of, of uh, controls on, on international capital flows in the 80s, led by the United States, begins this globalization and financial globalization of the capitalist system uh, globally. And ever since then, we've seen a deepening of that uh, and a growing uh, attempt to compress wages and benefits in various ways and to expand finance and financial capital markets and uh, capital gains opportunities and U.S. taking a lead in globalization. Uh, and then, of course, as you mentioned, the opening up of uh, uh, the Eastern Europe and Soviet Union and then the opening up of China just accelerates all this even, even further. And uh, tax cuts after tax cuts for corporations and investors uh, changing of uh, the job markets to prevent more part-time temp, uh, you know, uh, contingent labor, low wage. Uh, at the same time, now we got the gig economy, the latest uh, uh, version of all this. Uh, this is neoliberalism that breaks down in 2008, and they're trying to put it back together, uh, relying on monetary policy, which uh, clearly... Uh, uh, boosted capital incomes, but didn't do anything for earned incomes at all. And now you see the revolt. Uh, bringing in Obama, I think, uh, in 2008 was a conscious decision by the elite. Uh, that wasn't by accident. This guy was brought up from, uh, you know, South, South Chicago, uh, Harvard-educated intellectual, spends uh, one term in the Illinois uh, uh, legislature and one term in the, the Senate, <clears throat> and then he's brought in at the last minute in the 2008 campaign and uh, pushed to the fore, he represents what I, what I think the, the elite's uh, effort to uh, manipulate a kind of a left populism that they never, never delivered on. And now uh, what you got are the elites uh, manipulating a right populism with Trump. And he won't deliver either, in my opinion. But uh, people are being fooled again, uh, with a mirror image policy that's uh, really coming from a, a certain sector of, of the uh, U.S. elites who were split on whether they should do that or just continue with this central bank 
version, free trade version of, uh, of neoliberalism, or whether they needed to shift uh, to a new new policy mix once again to keep uh, you know the whole show going. And I think uh, the Trump election reflects that split in the elites and the elites that said, no, we need to move on to a whole new uh, version, neoliberalism 2.0, um, which has elements of Reagan as well as the later versions under Clinton and Bush. It's kind of a, a new mix uh, of neoliberalism. Uh, and uh, that's what we got now. Yeah, I would, I would uh, say continue that this discussion. Uh, do you uh, do you think that Trump himself is conscious of all that's gone on in the past? I mean, he's identified uh, certain trends, the globalization and so forth. But again, like I said, he sees this as accidental and contingent. He, he doesn't give any appearance of understanding the policies that were put in place to make this happen, that this was not a a bunch of idiots that all of a sudden decided to globalize way back when and they screwed it up and now he's going to come in and fix it. I mean, it's almost as if he's a guy that really doesn't get it, but he he struck a chord with middle America who's been decimated by these policies. And I think the elites were caught flat-footed here uh, with, with Donald. Now, Donald will figure it out sooner or later that he, he goes along and gets along uh, with the big boys, he'll make a lot of money, uh, he'll have uh, bank support for his real estate, and so forth. But on the other side, he's got the Bernie movement, the young kids who also see lack of opportunity and understand more uh, what happened. And of course, they shunted Bernie aside, they wanted Hillary to, to sit on the, on the lead. But if we go back to uh, first principles, I mean, the United States was built on protectionism. I mean, if the story is, 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 is really looked at, uh, and, 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 and the funny thing is the Hamilton boy on the, in the play that uh, so jumped on the vice president, Alexander Hamilton really set the stage by saying to America in 1800, look, free trade for us is, not, is a non-starter, sure. We can be a, a very efficient agricultural producer, and England can be a manufacturer, and we can trade in the short run and theoretically be better off. But free trade has a time dimension which nobody mentions. And so Hamilton says, look, basically, let's build up our own industries, even if it's inefficient in the short run. In the long run, the gains from manufacturing, economies of scale, learning by doing, will, will allow us to foster past England. And by 1870, that, of course, happened. Uh, we had free trade within the country, and we had uh, protectionist elements versus the world. And free trade within the country was okay because you're dealing with the same capital structure, same education, same environment, same situation, more or less, where you wouldn't have one side totally putting the other side out of business, which is the case today when you have powerful manufacturing countries going to the low-wage uh, labor arbitrage situations and, and violating the real tenets of free, free trade and just doing wage arbitrage, which you so eloquently described in, 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 in your works. Now, this is a dead-end situation, as far as I can see. Uh, you, you're going to bifurcate the world. Uh, Americans really do not have a clue as to what's happened. 
you've documented uh, almost a $9 billion shift in wages in, uh, from middle and lower class people to elites over a 15-year period by various mechanisms, taxes, tax changes, uh, union busting, uh, deregulation, which allowed the elites, New York, LA, and so forth, to, to prosper wonderfully as bankers and financiers for this transformation. But they really left the other country behind. They left the Trump country really as a second nation, a Brazil of America, if you will. Now, I know you feel passionately about union, union movements and, and uh, uh, repairing uh, bargaining power and all of that, but we've got a situation here where I, I, I truly believe that the elites don't need, don't visualize truly uh, a, a coherent nation, even though they would argue, List would argue, all Hamilton would argue, uh, Eric Reinert would argue. You have to have a balanced economy with all sectors of people working at it. You can't do a Rome today and hive off, you know, all of the manufacturing of somebody else and dominate it financially forever. Can't do that. Uh, so you have a situation where New Yorkers especially are very upset about Trump. They're, they're wondering why the country's so upset. You come to New York, everyone's basically happy here. This is a good, what, what are you talking about? Free trade works for us. You know, half, three quarters of our money coming in here is from overseas anyway. And all of the support mechanisms, lawyers, accountants, and all of that, they feed off that. Uh, the uh, media feeds off that. So they're seeing a wonderful world here. They're not seeing, they're, 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 they're scratching their heads about how could Hillary have lost this election? And uh, so I don't think the genie can be put back into the bottle here. What do you think? Well, you make a number, a number of important points. Uh, first of all, uh, regarding uh, uh, Trump, I think initially he wasn't as aware, but he's learning very fast uh, about uh, a new plan that's, that's being put together uh, sort of in stride, uh, you might say. Uh, my, my view of Trump is that he's going to be, uh, on, on certain policies, he's going to be a very traditional Republican neoliberal. Uh, that's tax policies and regulation policies. Uh, on trade, I think uh, a, a lot of talk of the campaign is not going to happen on trade. Uh, I think his strategy is uh, to publicly look visible attacking individual companies, but he's going to uh, be a free trader, but a bilateral free trader. Negotiate case by case, uh, not multilateral uh, free trade. Uh, I don't think major changes are going to come in the NAFTA agreement, and that's going to be delayed for some time between before any changes. And in the meantime, uh, he's going to make it look like these bilateral renegotiations are really attacking free trade when they're not attacking free trade. Uh, so I think a, a lot of the free trade talk is a, is a lot of lies. Uh, you're not going to see jobs come back in mining and manufacturing and so forth. But you're going to see a lot of smoke about the individual companies. Uh, the carrier deal, the Ford deal, are, are really subsidies uh, not to uh, move jobs overseas. They're, they're not really attacking these companies for moving jobs overseas. Uh, so free trade, I think, is, is, is going to shift in its form from multilateral to bilateral. 
uh, you're going to see a continuation, uh, a big, big focus on uh, on massive investor corporate tax cuts uh, and uh, deregulation coming. And what you're going to see with Trump is to keep his uh, right wing base uh, close to him. He will be a, a very uh, aggressive on social policies, uh, you know, EPA and uh, already uh, anti-union already with, uh, you know, this this uh, guy Pudzer uh, and uh, uh, immigration. He's going to be very he's going to act very tough on this uh, social side. Uh, of these issues, uh, while he acts very neoliberal uh, on on the traditional side, that's how you know the the, the deregulation, the taxes, is how he's going to keep the Republican elite, uh, you know, in in his camp. And on the other hand, he's going to keep his uh, uh, lower middle class uh, radicals, uh, if they're radicals, uh, contained with these social policies. Uh, and he's going to try to fake it uh, with with workers about uh, trade and and those kinds of issues. This is how I see him governing uh, going going forward. The other point you made was uh, situation with uh, uh, American or U.S. economic elites. Do they uh, really need the American worker as much? Uh, no, they don't, because it's a global economy now. It's a financial economy now. And they see the opportunity and has seen, have seen it uh, for a couple of decades now, at least since 2000, the ability to make even greater profits from financial asset investment and reduce taxes to pass that through to uh, shareholders and investors even more than before as relatively more lucrative uh, than real asset investment, creating jobs and so on and so forth. This is the change in finance. Uh, finance capital in the 21st century that I believe a lot of economists, you know, even liberals, you know, like uh, Krugman and others just don't see. Those people were trained in the national income and product accounts, looking at real assets and real investment. And uh, their DSGE model, models reflect that, that don't forecast very well anymore. They don't understand how the elite has made this major shift to a, a greater relative focus, relative focus on financial speculation and financial asset investments is far more profitable, less risky, and uh, uh, the returns are such so great uh, that this is the way U.S. capital has moved in the 21st century. Uh, until we understand that, I don't think, uh, you know, mainstream economists, I'm very critical of them, I, I don't think they understand finance and what's going on with shadow banking and all the uh, highly liquid financial asset markets everywhere and how in a global economy with a new technology you can arbitrage and move it all move this around instantaneously this is where the real profits are being made and you see this already in the shift we, i mean the stock markets are tri have tripled right absolutely uh, well so uh, that's where the action is i think okay well they can they control the uh, the money issuance, the quantitative easing. Uh, if you you check that out, how much they've created in since 2008 to today, it's about four trillion dollars, and that's about the increase in the stock market valuation, four trillion dollars. So by suppressing wages, using low wage products coming in, and basically having unlimited cheap labor and access to resources, they can sit on the inflationary side 
and the product side, and all new money goes to the asset side. It's almost like counterfeiting, I mean, in a, in a way. They're creating this money. Uh, we as Georgists, we say, you know, you're using real estate and monopoly as a, a, a sort of uh, set of assets to loan against and speculate and, and drive this kind of financialization. And we would argue we should tax monopoly out of the system and use that as, a, as the uh, means to run governments. But, you know, that's, they're not going to do that because that would cut the financialization right out. And then if you look at financialization from a, from a workers' or a union point of view, I mean, it's a perfect way, rather than arguing uh, with, with labor about at the point of production to take their, their money and push them down there, why not wait until they invest and put the money for their pensions in the stock market and then clip it from that end, you know? And, uh, and you know, you take it away from them on the back end much easier than on the front end. And I don't think workers understand that. They financialized mortgages, personal debt, education. I mean, so, you know, the workers are, are besieged at the production point of production and in their savings, what they are, uh, they're taken out that way. So the American worker, being the high-priced worker in the system, is essentially confronted with a take-it-or-leave-it situation now. And, of course, you know, the, the real, real truth of the matter is you could have kept your standard of living in America and Europe, and you could have rebuilt Asia the same way we were rebuilt. You could have invested in Asia and let them build their own markets and internal structures without having to arbitrage our people out of existence in doing that. But there was no money to be made at the rate they're making it now with the policies that they've, that they've Im implemented. Now, the problem here, I think, is uh, I think history shows us that when a, when, when, a, when a country, any kind of country, any kind of system, going all through history, when 1% of the population takes 30% of the wealth of 30 plus, bad things happen. It's just too much of a pull for the appearance of it. And, and of course, you're seeing that in America now with Trump and Bernie. And with the acceleration of technology, robotization, monopoly, uh, sweeping money into a few hands, the system really has no release valve. And then you're running into an impending environmental constraint. So if you look at it from a big picture point of view, uh, and you, you watch the policy actors, there's really no way out for these current policies. I mean, with Hillary Clinton, you would have to sit down and slow the system down, perhaps. Donald brings the system into, into, into real play and accelerates the, the built-in contradictions to a tremendous degree. And I really, if I were an investment banker, and I hate to pick on the Goldman Sachs, the J.P. Morgan, as symbols, but these are smart, bright people. They know what you and I are talking about. They get that. But if you were them, you, you lucked into a nice situation, you're making good money, you're living good, you know that chances are nobody can corral this beast anymore. Why not just sit on it, play it out, enjoy your life, and have to be the deluge? Yeah, as far as that, 
last point is concerned. It reminds me of Charlie Prince, uh, you know, when the crash came in 2008, they asked him, uh, you know, didn't you know this was going to happen? Yeah. And he said, uh, yeah, sure. We all knew it was happening. But when you go to the dance, you got to dance with somebody, you know, uh, individually. Uh, they know if they try to individually bucket uh, their shareholders, their big shareholders would dump them in a New York minute, as they say. Right. So they have to go along with it. Uh, and, and they know the direction. They're smart people. I agree with you. They know what's happening. Uh, and uh they know that you can't continue this uh, concentration of wealth, uh, you know, according to the uh, one of the latest uh, Emmanuel Saez studies on his world income database. Ninety seven percent of all the net income <clears throat> growth since 2009 has gone to the wealthiest one percent. And this came up with another uh, re release here uh, just a couple of days ago, which showed that uh, the bottom 50 percent households uh, share of national income has dropped from about 20% to 12%. Uh, and conversely, 10, uh, 10 to 20% uh, for the wealthiest. Uh, that concentration, uh, as you say, can't keep on because in, in real terms, what it means for the mass of, uh, of, of wage earners in this country, except for the very, very small percentage at the top who maybe work in tech, uh, what it means is that uh, they are being uh, consigned to uh, uh, no growth and no hope. Uh, the problem is with, with the millennials. You know, the millennials, the largest group now, uh, there's no hope. I know some of them. I have some of them in my family. Uh, they're extremely upset, and uh, I, I don't blame them because what do they got? They, uh, they graduate with degrees, and they got low-paid service jobs if they got those. And then they have to patch together part-time contingent jobs, temporary work, if they can find those. And now they got gig jobs. Uh, what you got is a, a, a major radical retransformation of the labor markets. And it's the millennials who are taking the hit on this. And uh, they're going to radicalize before the rest, I think. Uh, and then you have the older folks who for eight years now have uh, no returns on their fixed income, grandma, grandpa zero interest, you know, on their CDs and savings accounts and so forth. Uh, and uh, you, you don't have, uh, you have a, a, a slow rolling privatization of Medicare going on uh, that's going to now intensify. Uh, so it's the older folks, you know, who aren't going to be that politically active unless it's just voting. Um, but it's the younger ones who are really uh, being screwed. But, and I don't see a solution in the labor movement. I, mean, I spent years there, and uh, the labor movement has been decimated. Uh, it's been cowed. Its uh, leadership is uh, has only one strategy, and that's to beg uh, with an open bowl for the Democratic Party. Uh, and uh, they are no force at all, virtually no force anymore, and, uh, and their influence is declining even further. So... Uh, what form the millennial rebellion will take is, is yet to be determined, I think. Okay, well, of course, that suggests a question. Had this debate uh, with many people here. Uh, why, the, why did the American people allow this to happen? I mean, this is a case where uh, by 1965, uh, working and middle class people were in pretty good shape in this country. You know, the Roosevelt. Uh, compromises, uh, all of that, the fact that we expanded into a into a vacuum, it was almost like another open frontier. 
really made it uh, that period of, as as we look back now, really a halcyon peri period. It wasn't perfect, but there was plenty of opportunity. And this has all been swept away. And the question is, uh, are the American people culpable by essentially falling asleep at the switch here and allowing this to occur? We have an argument in New York uh, that basically says, look, everyone's getting what they deserve. They didn't see it. They didn't get educated. They didn't move to New York. They didn't get into the swing of finance. Uh, screw them. What do you want from us? You know, uh, we're supposed to get stupid because they didn't get smart. I mean, uh, it's a real feeling of, of elitism, even permeating down to the second and third tiers of the support system in, in, in New York. They basically say, well, what the hell is the, you know, you guys didn't defend yourselves, didn't protect yourself, uh, and now at the 11th hour, you're compli complaining about it? And you want us to give back our lifestyles, which are quite nice. And uh, you know, what would your answer be to those to those people? Well, if you look at what happened in the eighties, nineteen eighties, you had uh, actually the late seventies. You had uh, the corporate elites uh, taking a much more aggressive activist role within the Republican Party uh, to make sure the Republican Party uh, re reflected its neoliberal policy positions and preferences, which it did. Uh, the Democratic Party, which was always a coalition, you know, some unions and so forth and community groups and so forth, uh, thought that Reagan would be temporary. He wasn't. Uh, he was a part of a deeper trend. And uh, by the late 80s, uh, we see the corporatization of the Democratic Party. The Democratic Leadership Conference, which is the corporate money wing, uh, takes over and by the end of the Clinton uh, administration has full control of that, that party. And that party moves from a kind of Roosevelt, uh, LBJ uh, social consciousness, uh, I think, to uh, a junior partner to the neoliberal project. Uh, so uh, people don't have a voice. At the same time, their unions throw in with the Democratic Party. Uh, they always were close. And... Uh, they give up fighting as well. They, you know, there were a lot of fights in the 80s against uh, Reagan and neoliberalism uh, by workers, uh, uh, but they were localized and their uh, local uh, and their union national leadership sat on them and helped break those those struggles uh, to bring the tame them and bring the the FLCO uh, clearly with un, under the the skirts of the Democratic Party by by 1990. Uh, when you say they get what they deserve, well, they have no vehicle to express their opposition is the problem in the U.S. Uh, we have, uh, you know, the two wings of the corporate party of America now, uh, and there is no no independent way uh, to reflect this their opposition and uh, uh, different policies. Uh, Sanders tried to do that. Uh, I. I think Sanders, it, it was a naive effort to ever think that he could reform from an inside strategy the Democratic Party with all the superdelegates <laughs> that existed. Um, however, he believed that was the way to go. I, I do not believe an inside strategy can ever succeed in this Democratic Party. Maybe in the 70s, the 60s it might, but this is a thoroughly corporatized uh, party 
and uh, you cannot reform it uh, uh, from within. So the American people uh, kept believing uh, that that there was a solution in in the Democratic Party, and they've been uh, continually uh, disappointed. I think uh, those that tried to break from it in the last election through the Sanders movement, um, I think, are getting another education. So all they can do is vote, you see, vote protest. I don't think the people who voted for Trump in Michigan and Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, really believed in his policies. I think those people were, were, were so angry uh, and wanted change that they didn't get in 2008. Uh, and they also wanted to stick a finger in the eye of the elites that they see no difference on either end, uh, that out of desperation, they, they voted for him, for Trump. Uh, and of course, they're going to get screwed. But until, until there is some kind of independent, and it's very difficult in the system we got to develop an independent political structure that has to come from below. Uh, but we have broken through in severe cases, you know, like the uh, before the Civil War and and uh, around the turn of the century and so forth. It's not impossible, though extremely difficult uh, in a non-parliamentary system. Uh, but until that happens, I think uh, American, uh, average Americans are going to be continue to be whipsawed uh, be between these two wings of the one corporate party of America. And uh, we see now that those elites very cleverly beginning to manipulate the uh, uh, the kind of grassroots uh, populist discontent. Uh, they've been very clever in 2008 and 2016 in doing this. How long they can do that, uh, I don't know. Uh, we will see uh, what happens to the global economy because we're going to get a little push here in GDP in the next year. Uh, but if the rest of the global economy goes in the direction I think it's going to go, which is much, much worse, uh, the U.S. Uh, cannot... Uh, hide from the rest of the global trends that are going to descend in 2018-19 uh, on the U.S. economy as well. Okay, well, I would, uh, taking you up on that point, uh, in the talk I gave about Trump, I identified that uh, he's intellectually following a policy prescribed by a, 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 an economic writer called Richard Duncan. I don't know if you're familiar with Richard Duncan. Uh, Richard Duncan uh, has written a number of recent works on, on credit and the expansion of credit from fiat money. And he's done quite a good job on that. And he basically has been advocating uh, that Trump could build a big public works uh, program by, in effect, making a super QE effort maybe $5 trillion, and go into building new industries uh, and, and outflank the uh, fact that we cannot really compete in the current economies, you know, given the way it's structured with lower wages and technology going offshore, that, that we could borrow our way because of the peculiar setup of our, uh, our unbalanced imports requiring a, a the people who, who export to us to, in effect, lend us the money to continue the process, we could use that and print money to build a whole brand new series of super industries, biotech, 
you know, really extend some of the cutting edge industries and in effect outflank the problem. Of course, uh, that, if, that, if he did that and he started drawing on resources, interest rates would start to go up strongly. And I think we're so highly leveled around the world that if we pushed interest rates two or three basis points, I mean, really, from two, from one to four or five percent, the debt overhang would just implode back on everybody, and then you'd have a massive depression. So this is a, the Duncan plan is a, is steering between massive depression and this huge credit fuel boom that's out of sight. Now, much of the talk that he has about the outsourcing and this, that, everything, also comes from Richard Duncan. And all of this idea of uh, he's going to invest in new industries and make America great, if he could read Richard Duncan and do it literally, uh, he would have a chance to do it. He just doesn't understand the forces that impinge upon Donald are really not going to allow that to, to happen. They're not going to allow anything that would, would, would push interest rates up because the game is over. So he can't really deliver on that promise, and he can't deliver on the stop of the outsourcing uh, uh, promise uh, problem. He can't stop automation and robotization. Uh, perhaps he could cobble together a WPA kind of program for the Midwest, where everybody plants trees or pulls weeds or something like that to buy some time. Maybe he can fake a five-mile segment of the wall in Mexico carried out for four years saying, I'm, I'm, I'm doing it, I'm doing it. But basically, he landed in the middle of a situation where there's no way out for this guy. No comments. Well, uh, I've long advocated a, a major democratization and change in the central bank. You know, uh, right now, the central bank only provides uh, credit for uh, banks and shadow banks. Uh, but if you had a QE for Main Street, you know, and provide this kind of credit for Main Street uh, policies, real policies, create real jobs and so forth, uh, that uh, it, it might have a, a significant effect more longer term. But you're not going to see that because very clearly uh, financial interests aren't going to give up their primary institution and democratize it and open it to benefit the rest of the economy. Uh, I agree with you that uh, Trump cannot do uh, all that he may think he's going to do. Uh, Congress is pri Republican Congress uh, is primarily interested in uh, tax cuts and deregulation, and uh, they're going to put up with Trump until they get that. And if he pushes any further in terms of uh, uh, a real radical uh, moves to generate real jobs and so forth i.e., in other words, <coughs> doing something about free trade, uh, he'll be stopped. You won't be able to pull that, pull that off. At the same time, <coughs> we have a real problem, as you point out, with massive amount of excess debt exists, particularly in emerging markets, and increasingly dollarized debt, uh, so that <coughs> as interest rates rise in the U.S., uh, if they should rise much further than one to two percent, uh, you're going to see uh, a massive capital flight out of emerging markets. You're already seeing that occurring. Uh, you're going to see collapse of their currencies, which is already beginning. Even in China, 
uh, capital flight becoming a real problem. Devaluation, they're on the verge of devaluation. When that happens, they'll send a, a shot heard around the world. Uh, uh, Europe is chronic stagnating. Um, and uh, now with the spread between bond rates, the money's flowing out of Europe to the U.S. Uh, it's flowing out of uh, emerging markets back to the U.S. Uh, and what that means is as interest rates rise, uh, how are they going to finance that debt? You see, it's massive and it's dollarized. And how are they going to find it? They're not going to be able to, to finance that debt. And you're going to see the crisis emerge from outside the U.S. this time. It's not going to be located in the banks and the shadow banks uh, in the U.S. It's going to be outside. Uh, and the dimensions and the rate of pace of that is going to have a, a profound effect on what Trump is going to try to do and U.S. elites are going to try to do. Uh, I don't think that they'll be successful in what they're going to try to do. I don't think Trump is going to be successful for more than a, a short year with some um, infrastructure spending going on. It won't be as big as he said. Uh, interest rates, I think, rising interest rates in the U.S. will probably kill more jobs that his infrastructure spending will create in the short run. Uh, wages will not recover. Uh, the same problems are still there. I think they're going to, it's going to, people are euphoric, particularly investors, you know, thinking, oh, now we're going to have a big change. And you're going to see a temporary period where that hope and appearance uh, may prevail, but that's going to dissipate fairly quickly as the rest of the global economy deteriorates even faster. Uh, my book earlier this year, I don't know if you've had a chance to look at a systemic fragility in the global economy. Yes, I finished that book. Absolutely. Uh, Wonderful really, book. Really is talking about uh, looking at this from a global perspective, not just the U.S. policy perspective anymore. And uh, Trump is very much uh, focusing, uh, trying to focus on, on the U.S. economy. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, the bigger problem is coming. I think, and it's coming from outside the U.S., and that will really constrict what he can do and what he can't do. Well, uh, maybe I can kind of sum it up this way. If we go back to uh, the days of Rome, of course, they didn't have the acceleration of technology that we had, but they had many of the same social problems. Uh, Rome launched itself on the, on the backs of its peasant uh, holders of land. They put them in the legions, conquered the world, bankrupted the peasants, took over their lands, brought the slaves back in that these peasants conquered for them, let them work the land, and then dispersed their legions, what's left of them, around the world as kind of outpost guards. And essentially, Rome hollowed, it, hollowed, hollowed out itself and became Rome in various places, Ravenna and so forth, because it didn't need Rome per se. They hollowed that out. You always have the same situation here, except we have nuclear weapons. I mean, we can really cast the last shot here. Uh, we have environmental issues, which are going to be unending and unyielding. And uh, we have uh, Donald Trump, who I, I characterize for the audience I gave the, the speech to in this way. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie, They Died With Their Boots On with Errol Flynn. It's a movie about George Armstrong Custer. 
Now, of course, everyone thinks of George Armstrong Custer as the guy at Little Bighorn, but he was a great Civil War hero. And he was accidentally appointed Brigadier General. Uh, he just out of West Point, uh, a little before the Battle of Gettysburg. And he finds himself as a Brigadier General in the pivotal battle of the Civil War, managing or running three Michigan Cavalry Brigades. So he's in charge. The orders were for him to sit on the flank and watch. He ignored the orders. He happened to spot Jeb Stuart outflanking the Union Army, coming behind uh, the Union Army just at the point where Pickett's charge was scheduled to hit. Robert E. Lee had scheduled not just a massive charge of Pickett's brigade, but a coordinated attack from behind by uh, 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 the cavalry commander uh, of the Confederacy. I can't remember his name. Uh, but George Armstrong Custer disobeyed his orders, took a, took a shot, and said, I'm just going to go where the action is. And he went there, and he got in the way of Jeb Stuart and stopped Jeb Stuart from coming behind the Union lines. The Union lines held, and the Civil War basically was won at that point. And he was characterized as the most irresponsible second lieutenant in the U.S. Army. So perhaps Donald can catch uh, George Armstrong Custer's luck, and he can charge to the sound of the guns and maybe throw everything that we're talking about in a cocked hat. But I think this is really going to remain a, a movie scene, and the reality will be quite different. But he reminds me of George Armstrong Custer in this situation. He doesn't know what's happened necessarily, but he sees something happening, and he goes and investigates it, and in effect wins the war not knowing, he didn't know for years, if ever, how critical that accidental decision was. And perhaps we can, we can rely on accidentalism, maybe? What do you think? Well, you know, uh, Custer ultimately uh, got himself killed, didn't he? <laughs> that little bighorn, because of another uh, risky move, right? Risky move, sometimes you get lucky. Risky move, sometimes it gets you killed. And, uh, you know, second time he did it, if that was uh, the second time at a little bighorn, he ended up uh, six feet under. Uh, I don't, I'm, you know, my feeling about Trump is that there are some elements of independence there, maybe. Uh, but um, my belief is that he's, he's a businessman and he's a pragmatic and that he will be he will be uh, tamed, and we are already seeing uh, the, the taming of Trump, as I wrote last week. And I think we're going to continue to see the taming of Trump. Uh, and what we'll end up with uh, is a a policy of uh, apparent fiscal stimulus, which will really be tax cuts, uh, and uh, more of the neoliberal strategy. Uh, just in different shape and form, perhaps, but more of the same. And the problem uh, with both monetary policy and fiscal policy is that the multipliers have collapsed, in my view. And uh, uh, therefore, you do not get the real stimulus 
from monetary policy, which we saw. You know, it was either the the massive injections, which you know, if you count traditional uh, uh, bond buying by the central bank, not just QE, probably ten to fifteen trillion dollars of uh, of injection. Uh, most of which uh, was either hoarded or went offshore or went into financial asset markets. Very little uh, got into real stimulus and investment in the U.S. We see investment declining for the last 10 years in, in the U.S. It's virtually flat, nothing existing uh, at all. You can't have an economy without uh, a real investment and therefore real job creation and real income creation. Uh, that That economy is going nowhere. I don't think the fiscal... Uh, uh, infrastructure spending will generate a change uh, very long or very significantly in that direction. Uh, the fiscal multipliers have collapsed as well. Uh, I, I think mo monetary and fiscal policy um, has, has largely been negated by globalization and financialization. And uh, that's fundamental to what's going on. Uh, and I think that's the big crisis that they're facing. We, we, we saw that monetary policy, central bank policy benefited uh, the 1% and, and investors and not the rest. I think we're going to see the same happening now with fiscal policy, but it's going to take a year or two for that to sink in. Uh, and during that year or two, uh, we're going to see an intensification of crises in emerging markets in China and in Europe. Uh, that's going to be the reality after this uh, uh, sort of uh, party ha ha halasan, halasan party partying period uh, of the next year. You see, uh, uh, the real crunch I think is coming in 2018 when all this uh, false impressions of change uh, will wear off, and I don't think uh, the wealthy elites are going to really significantly change. Uh, for the good of uh, of the U.S. because they are global now, and you know they their their allegiance and alliance uh, to the U.S. is less than it ever was before. Um, so I I don't see any real change coming. I see a, a kind of neoliberalism 2.0 with some minor adjustments temporarily that will fail. In the meantime, the global economy is going to intensively get worse. And I don't Trump is going to I don't think Trump. Uh, in his uh, eclectic kind of uh, pragmatic, let's attack this or that, is going to uh, change fundamentally the policies or the direction of what's going on. Well, I have to say I agree with you, Jack. I think we'll end this little uh, get-together, but I enjoy it tremendously. And hopefully if we ask you again uh, to do a, another show with us, you will do it. If you have anything significant you want to say, will always be a forum uh, for your discussions. So I want you to know uh, we here uh, are, are fans of your work. Keep it coming. It's wonderful. It's a wonderful body of work. Uh, Jack Rasmus, everybody, we get 100,000 hits a month now. We're getting, getting uh, lots of attention. If you want to read the best overall summations of what's going on in the world today, you really can't go wrong with Jack Rasmus. Trust me on this. I have a, I have a new book coming out in uh, March called Central Bankers on the Ropes. Really? I'm sure you'll find it interesting. Okay. Well, we have every one of your books, so we'll just add to the collection. Thanks, Jack. I appreciate it. And that's it for this week's episode of Smart Talk. Thank you for listening, and we hope it made you think. 
If you'd like to learn more about our research, check out hgsss.org. That's hgsss.org. If you'd like to listen to our content as soon as it's published, subscribe to our show. If you like our show, please leave us a rating, review, or even share with a friend. It goes a long way. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.